Matt didn't trust me with the horn there, so he took that to a seat with him. And we're all grateful for that this morning, aren't we? Last week on Sunday night, we continued in our series on the gospel and talked about how the church is called to be the gospel displayed. And we are called to engage our culture in such a way that our culture, those around us, see the gospel. We're a, we're a visible manifestation of the gospel, the love of Christ to those around us. This morning, we're going to continue that train of thought. Specifically, we're going to look at how, as the display of the gospel, how that, how that impacts our relationships with other people, both inside and outside the church. So let's go to the Lord this morning as we prepare to go before him and, and study his word. Father, we are thankful, God, for your word. We're thankful for the scripture. We're thankful for the blessing of song and music in which we've been able to express our praise to you. God, we pray now that you would grow our love for you, that we might better glorify you and grow our love for one another, that we might care for one another and build one another up in you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. From 1775 to 1783, the colonists revolted against British tyranny and rule. Over the course of that time, approximately 25,000 people gave their lives for the sake of that conflict. The result of that conflict was that the United States of America became a free country. From 1861 to 1865, the Confederate and Union armies engaged in the Civil War, the bloodiest battle we've known. 625,000 people gave their lives during this conflict. Historically, American citizens have fought hard for freedom. We've died for our freedom. We're proud of our freedom. We live in a country that's free from slavery and tyranny, and our freedom is a great source of pride and joy. We even defend it. We promote it. We go around the world to battle and so that others might be free as we are free. Freedom is a very important part of our lives as Americans, isn't it? It's also an important part of our lives as Christians. In 30 AD, Jesus Christ was crucified. And on that day, one man, the Son of God, died. And the result of that death was that all who trust in Christ, turning from their sins, are made free in Christ. Freedom is a critical and important part of our lives. Freedom is also the kind of the theological background or context of today's, today's message. So as you turn, I want you to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. That'll be our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 11.1. But as you do that, and before we get into this passage, I, I want to just kind of give you a background of our freedom that we have in Christ. Because those of you who are in here that are believers, Scripture describes that you are free in Christ, that the gospel has set you free. And so I want to give you that background quickly before we get into the, the meat of our text this morning. First, we know this. According to Scripture, that outside of Christ, all, all who live are in bondage to sin. They're slaves to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus says that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. In Romans six twenty, Paul refers to us being slaves of sin when we are lost. In Galatians 4.3, it's explained that before Christ, we were held in bondage to the elemental things of the world. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Bible describes you as being in bondage. You're enslaved to sin. 
You may not realize that. You may not come before here, before us today and say, hey, I'm a slave, but you are. The things that you do are completely in characteristic of who you are, a slave to sin, and you live as such. The good news is that through Christ, we are set free from bondage and slavery. That, in essence, that's the, the message of the gospel, that those who were enslaved to sin are set free by the sacrifice, the substitute of Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. John 8.32, Jesus says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. So the gospel, the good news, is that those who are in bondage are freed. Those who are dead are made alive. The catch, so to speak, is that our freedom calls us to a certain standard of living. When we come to Christ, we aren't set free and going, okay, now go about, go about life and just live however you want to live. God calls us out. He calls us out to be free, and he calls us to live for his glory. So at 1 Peter 1.16, we are told to be holy, for he is holy. 1 Peter 2.16 we are told to act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom calls us out to no longer live in sin, but to live for God. And to live for God in a way that shows love to our brothers. This ne there's a necessary tension in Scripture between the freedom that we have and how we're commanded to live in light of that freedom. There's a tension grammatically between the indicative and the imperative. There's a tension between the statement of fact, what Christ has done. What has Christ done? He set us free. And so we have on, on one hand that sitting here today, if you're a Christian... If you're a believer, you have been set free in Christ. That is a statement of fact. That's the reality of who you are as a believer. You are free in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's liberty. There's freedom. We know that. We live in that. That's the fact. The command that we see in Scripture then is that Christ has called you to live out your life of freedom for His glory and for the good of those around you. We don't just sit back in our freedom and live however we want to. We don't check the box of salvation and to go about life however we deem life should be lived. No, we come to Christ. Christ sets us free. And then we live for Christ, for his glory and the good of those around us. This is that tension. That this, the fact is that we've been set free. The command is we're called to live for his glory and the good of others. The truth then is this. Here's today's truth is that freedom does not remove our responsibility towards the well-being of others and the necessity to live within certain boundaries that God has set. Our freedom does not remove our responsibility towards the well-being of others and the necessity to live within certain boundaries that God has set. 
we understand this as citizens of America, don't we? And if we, if we just do it on a national level, we, we would say we are free people. We live in a land of freedom. But in this land of freedom, there are certain boundaries that we have to live within. As we drive down the road, there are certain laws we're called to obey. In our interaction with others, there are certain laws that we must obey. If we break those laws, we will find ourselves in prison. So while we are free, we still live within the confines and the bounds of how we are called to live. The, the trick is this, is that although we're free in Christ, culture contradicts this truth constantly. It constantly contradicts the truth by attempting to sell you on the idea that everything is about you. Everything's about you. Everything's about me. So we look at the ads, and what do we see? Make decisions based on who? On God? On others? No. Make decisions based on who? Based on me. Go to Twitter, Facebook. It's an opportunity for you to create a new me. So that most of our Twitter updates, or tweets, I guess I should say, most of our Facebook updates and social media is what? It's about me and establishing what I want other people to think of me and how I want to look. It's constantly funneled to us. It's constantly shoveled to us. That you're to live your life concerned for you and you alone. You're free to be me. So culture is constantly contradicting that truth. Culture is constantly saying, yeah, you are free. You're free to be you. You're free to be whoever you want to be. You're free to make yourself. But God has called us to live a certain way. I think there's three ways that, that Christians typically misunderstand their freedom. I want to briefly touch on these, and then we'll get into our text. Here, here's three common ways as Christians that we misunderstand our freedom. First, some Christians fail to live in their freedom and they fall prey to legalism. So, so some of us in here, you're, you're Christians, you've trusted Christ, but you've, you've bought the lie and you've fallen into to legalism. You, you've fallen under this idea that I have to be this person, and I have to do this, and I have to be at church this number of times, and I have to say these things, and I have to know these terms, and, I, and, this, and you have a checklist of things in your mind that makes you pleasing to God. And so as long as I obey that checklist and do those things and I please God and I've, I've slipped into to legalism and so my mind and my life is shaped by am I following those things? Am I checking those boxes off on my legalistic list? But Galatians 5.1 we read earlier, what does it say? It says it was for freedom that Christ set you free. So do not subject yourself to the yoke of slavery. If you're a believer in here and you're falling under this, this legalistic list of religious do's and don'ts, then you're subjecting yourself to a yoke of slavery. And Galatians 5 says, don't do that. You're called to live in freedom. Live as God has called you to live. The second way that I think Christians often misunderstood understand their freedom is this, is that some live with no regard to God's calling to holy living. They take their freedom in Christ for granted. So, so some of us just they live in no regards. Hey, I am free. I understand that. Man, I'm with you. Preach it. I'm free. And because I'm free, I'm going to live however I want to live. I don't really have to worry about it. I know the grace of God. I'm reveling in the grace of God. I've got my fire insurance. God's forgiven me, and I'll live how I want. 
Paul addressed this in Romans 6.1. He said, well, if God's grace is so magnificent, if it's so great, does that mean we just go about living however we want to live and, and we continue to live in sin? No. By no means, Paul says. By no means. So just because we're called to be free, we don't take that freedom for granted. We still live under God's rule. Finally, Christians misunderstand their freedom when they selfishly revel in that freedom, showing no regard for the spiritual well-being of others. Some Christians are so focused on, hey, God has set me free. God's shown grace to me. That they don't live in regard, they don't live thinking of the benefit of those around them. This develops when Christians become confused about the basis of our behavior. When we lose sight that God determines how we are called to live. God is our creator. He is the Lord of all creation. He's called us to live for his glory. This happens when everything becomes based on my knowledge and my rights. Hey, I know I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm good. And it's my right to do that. It's my right to say that. It's my right to wear that. I'm good. I'm living under God's grace. The problem is that knowledge and rights lead to pride. They're focused on me. They're not focused on God. They're not focused on others. They're focused on me. And so when we live in knowledge and rights and we're constantly going, hey, that's my right. It's my, hey, I can do that. Me, 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 me. Then it leads us down a path of misunderstanding God's freedom that he's given us. So this is the question then, is how do we live in freedom for God's glory and the good of others? How do we live as Christians in a way that, that we are living in the freedom of God's grace, but we're also living for God's glory and for the good of those around us? That's the question that we'll tackle in light of this background of freedom. So Look with me this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience's sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ." 
In the section leading up to this, Paul was encouraging and exhorting the believers at Corinth to live carefully, lest they stumble. Earlier in chapter 10, he made the comment, he said, Take heed, you who, who think you're, you're mature, be careful, because you could quickly stumble. If you're sitting in here today and you're thinking, hey, I'm okay, I'm good, no problems here, then you better be careful. Pride comes before the fall. We know that old cliche, that old truth, that pride comes before the fall. He goes on to say in, in verse 13 of chapter 10, he says, when temptation comes, it, it is temptation that's common to man, and God will not t- allow you to be tempted in a way that you cannot h- handle. He will provide a way out. He will provide an opportunity for you to flee that temptation. And so he's dealing with this on, on a personal level. As he looks, and he, he's warning them to be careful, but it's primarily for their own sake. Now, what Paul does is he, he shifts gears a little bit. And he says, be careful in the way you live, but it's not just for your sake, it's for the sake of those around you. So when we start thinking about our freedom and how we live out our life, there's two questions that we need to ask. There's two guiding principles that will help us live in freedom, live in God's grace without abusing that grace and abusing that freedom. So here's our first guiding question, our first principle, is we need to ask what will benefit and build up those around us? What will benefit and build up those around us? Look at verse 23 and 24. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. You see, we typically only ask what? When we we are faced with a tough decision, we're faced on, well, do I do this or, or should I not? Or we look at different issues in our life. Typically, the only question we ask is this. Is there anything wrong with it? Is there anything wrong with it? That, that's not necessarily a bad question. That's an okay question. But the problem is if that's the only question we ask, it gets us into trouble. Because then when we, we encounter gray areas, we encounter difficult decisions and, and difficult issues in life, when we encounter those, we, we go, well, is there anything wrong with it? I can't find anything wrong with it. Oh, it must be okay to do it. And, and we don't consider how that might impact others around us. We've got to go beyond that. We've got to learn to ask, will it benefit and build up those around me? If I do this, what, will it, what effect will it have on those around me? What effect will it have on those who are younger than me? Adults, do you understand that the children and youth of this church are constantly watching you? They're constantly looking at you as a picture of what it means to follow Christ. So, so what kind of trajectory are you showing them? What are they working towards? If they watch you and they see you, where is that leading them for how they follow Christ? Paul says in verse 23 that all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Listen, we're free to do a lot, aren't we? But just because we have the ability or freedom to do something does not mean that we should do something. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. We need to be understanding of that. He says that just because you have the the ability, the freedom to do it, does not mean that it's beneficial or profitable or constructive for someone else. That that word is definitely talking about other people. It's not talking about you. It's talking about other people. So that later, if you want to jot these down, you look at them later. But in chapter 8, verses 1 and 10, the same word is used. In chapter 14, verses 3 through 5, 
This word is used in reference to the building up of others. Later in chapter 10, verse 32, he, calls, he, he sets the example of saying, hey, don't offend Jews, Gentiles, or those in the church. Don't, don't offend anyone. You need to be conscious of the way you're living so that others will do what? They will be saved. So we're called to live in light of not only what is beneficial to us, but what's beneficial to others. Is that a part of your life? When you start thinking about your freedom, do you think about how it's going to influence others? Because our own freedom and rights don't dictate how we live. So I can't look and go, well, I have the right to do that, then I can do it. I can't just leave it at that. But I need to be asking, what, what is going to cause the people who live around me to more faithfully pursue God? When, when I think through a, a difficult decision, when I think through an, an opportunity I have even, is that, how's that going to influence those who are looking? How's it going to influence my own family? How's it going to influence the men I serve with? How's it going to influence the students? How's it going to influence you? Is, is it going to influence you to faithfully follow Christ? Is it going to influence you to trust Him more? How's it going to influence you? We have to ask that question. Listen, a topic we don't like to address, and people are often scared to confront with this section, is what we wear. Immodest dress. We see this every day. Where... where we say, hey, I have the right to wear that. I'm free to wear whatever I want to wear. When all the while is causing others to stumble. And because the way we're wired, because the way God designed us, this typically occurs with the way ladies dress and men around them. Just because of the way we're wired. Like it or not, that's how it works. And so typically we go, hey, I can wear it. Man, looks good on me. And we don't worry about our brothers in Christ. We say, hey, if they're not mature enough to handle it, that's their own problem. No, it's not. If that's your attitude, you've missed the spirit of 1 Corinthians 10. Totally missed it. The attitude of 1 Corinthians 10 is I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause my brother to stumble. I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause him to, to not focus on the Lord. Whether that's dress, whether it's something else, whether it's music, entertainment, whether it's flirting. Hey, I can say whatever I want to. I can flirt. It's no big deal. No harm done. I know what I meant. When all the while, she doesn't know that. So men, you'll go and you say whatever and, and be all flirtatious, but man, you're leading her on. You're causing her to stumble. You're causing her to grow more concerned about you than about the Lord. See, we have to be concerned about our brothers. What are the passages that as Scott read earlier, say, I won't be a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, I am not going to be a stumbling block. If eating meat causes me to be a stumbling block to others, what's Paul say? I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to eat it. That's one of my greatest fears is that somebody in here would say steak is causing me to stumble. You know, <laughs> that's a great fear we have, isn't it? But Paul says, listen, that's fine. If that's going to cause me to stumble, I'm not going to do it. I am not going to do it because I love you more than I love what I want. It's, it's rooted in verse 24 where he says, Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. The passage that Matt read earlier about love 
It is in the context of the church. And what does he say? Verse 5, it says, love does not seek its own. It does not seek its own. Romans 15, verse 1 and 2 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And he goes on to provide Christ as a supreme example of this attitude. See, the attitude that we have is called to be an attitude of love for one another, of regard for one another, not an attitude of selfishness. That we are called to, to think, how is this going to cause the people around me to follow Christ? How is it going to impact them? Look back in one chapter in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 23. Listen to what Paul writes here. He says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Hey, men don't set standards for me. If you're a Christian, men don't set the standard for you. You're free from men. But Paul says, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? so that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? So that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you see Paul's heart? Paul says, listen, I, I am free in Christ. I am not a slave to men. Men's traditions, they hold no power over me. But I am going to live in light of what the needs of those around me are. And I understand those. And I understand their limitations. I understand what they don't understand. I understand they don't have a full picture of grace. And so the things that are confining them, the things that they're struggling with, I'm not going to walk about and live my life in a way that, that has no concern for them. Instead, I, I'm going to meet them where they are. And if this causes them to struggle, I'm not going to do it. Why? To make myself look good? No. Why? Not to hurt their feelings? No. Why? Because I'm afraid of speaking the gospel. It could hurt their feelings and, and make them think, oh, I, I could be wrong. No. Why does he do it? For the sake of the gospel. He does it so that he might save some, he says. He does it so that God's grace might be manifest in them. That's why. Why do we live in light of those around us? Because we want to see those around us come to know Christ. He gives an example, verse 25 through 30. We're not going to go through this verse by verse. But in that passage, in those verses, he simply applies what he's been teaching. In that instance, the, the, the idolatry and, and the culture and the, the meat that was eaten, he said, if you, listen, if you go to the market, don't go around and say, hey, um, what, why was that bought? Was it bought for uh, this idol? Because if it was, I don't think I should buy it. He, don't do that. He said, listen, you know what you're doing. Go and, and buy some meat and eat it. But he says, if you go over to somebody's house and they say, hey, listen, this, um, this meat was sacrificed for the, in honor of our idol, then he says, don't eat it. If you know 
that it's something that's going to bring honor to a false god, don't do it. Now, here's our maybe perhaps, I don't think it's our top 21st century idol. I guess we could do a poll and have a reality show on the top idol or something. Um, but certainly one that we struggle with greatly is sports, isn't it? We do that, and we harp on it a lot, and we say, hey, sports is a big idol, and then we go home and watch football on Sunday afternoon. But sports, the reality is, is it is in a place of idolatry in many lives. And so how does that work out here? here here's the issue with sports, is that when sports cause you to neglect worship, what message does that send to those who are weaker? When, when our weeks are consumed with coaching and running to practice and cheering and, and all that with sports, when we will rearrange our schedule to watch a North Carolina Tar Heels basketball game, but it, we find it hard to rearrange our schedule to gather and worship, what message does that send to those around us? What's more important? It sends the message that, that sports is God. No matter which way we want to cut it. Right, if you say, well, you don't understand. It's this. Yeah, that's the message it sends. Now, I'm not one that would stand here and say, listen, you don't need to be involved in sports. And you need to be here every time the door opens. I love it when I see you here. But the reality is that there's times where you need to be with your team. There's times where you need to be coaching. And you need to be leading. You need to be cheering and, and yelling. But when you do it, you do so for the glory of God. And you do it in a way that is engaging our culture with the gospel. That the way we coach a ball team is different. That the way we cheer for a ball team is different. The way we yell at the referees is different. It's louder. I'm just kidding. All those things are different. Why? Because we are doing it for the glory of God. Listen, if you're here every time the, the doors are open and you're never on your ball team and you just quit playing sports, you know what that means? That means we have a lot of people that are unchurched, non-Christians playing sports that are never encountering you, God's missionaries. So go play sports. Go engage the culture. But do it for the glory of God. And don't allow that to draw you away from worship. Prioritize worship above those things. Tell your coach, hey, I'm sorry. I'm not going to miss worship. I may miss a committee meeting. Well, we don't have committees. I may miss a task force meeting. I may miss this. I may miss a family retreat. But I'm not going to miss worship. Why? Because Scripture says, do not forsake the gathering together for worship. Make worship a priority. There's a lot of things we do. Make worship a priority. If you're traveling, find somewhere to worship. Gather together with God's people. Show that God is your God. Are you conveying that? Is the way that you're playing sports conveying that God is God? Or is the way we're committing to sports causing others to stumble? The second principle, the second question that we have to ask is in verse 31. Verse 31. Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. The question is this, what will bring God glory? He bridges into this section, the, so or then or therefore. 
It is the purpose. So therefore, here's the result. This is, this is what it's all about. Will it bring God's glory? Will it bring God glory? Our, our, if our concern is for others is over here, it's one guiding principle, it's one boundary, then God's glory is the other. When you're talking about your freedom and how do you live in freedom, how do you bring God glory in the midst of that? Then we think about the concern for others, but ultimately, do we think about God's glory? That's the final guy. That's the ultimate thing. Whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, he's not saying, hey, whether you eat or drink or whatever, he's not flippantly saying that because in the context of what's going on, this is a significant thing. He says, listen, when you eat, when you drink, when you play sports, whatever it is, those things that are very important in your culture, those things that are important in your life, when you do those things, do it for the glory of God. Not just worship. Do life in a way that is worship. Do life in a way that you worship Christ. Our task, our goal, and our joy in life must be God's glory. Are you seeking God's glory by the way you live? I want to read you a quote from Charles Hodge. It's lengthy, but I think it's worth our time. He says this, God cannot be glorified by our conduct unless it be our object to act for his glory. All that Paul has said previously can be summed up in this. Let self be forgotten. Let your eye be fixed on God. Let the promotion of his glory be your object in all you do. Strive in everything to act in such a way that men may praise that God whom you profess to serve. It is by thus having the desire to promote the glory of God as the governing motive in our lives that order and harmony are introduced into all of our actions. You see, he says, listen, if you're going to so pursue God and his glory, it'll take care of everything else. Everything else is brought in the way it should be. He says the sun is in the center of the system. Men of the world have themselves for the end of their actions. We just talked about that, didn't we? Philosophers tell us to make the good of others the end and thus destroy the sentiment of religion by merging it into philosophy or benevolence. The Bible, Hodge says, the Bible tells us to make God the end. This secures the other ends by making them subordinate. They become subordinate while at the same time it exalts the soul by placing before it an infinite personal object, i.e. God. Listen, when, when Christ is the center of your life, then all things work as they should work. It doesn't mean life is perfect, it doesn't mean life is easy, but life functions as life should function. So when joys come, God is giving glory. When suffering comes, God is giving glory. When Christ is central, things go as it should go. We were riding bikes the other day, and Sydney said, my bike is making a funny noise. And I said, press on, let's go. Ten feet later, she screamed, and her pedal was laying on the ground, and she almost hit the dirt. And she said, Dad, my pedal just fell off. And I was thinking, well, how am I going to carry her back? The bike didn't work. The bike was useless at that time. There is no way she's pedaling up a hill with one pedal. So we get out and we fix it. It's all because one rod, it came loose and the pedal comes off. That central rod controlled everything on that bike, the gears and everything. So I had to fix that and get it working right for the bike to be effective. It's the same thing. If your life is out of order, if Christ is not the center, it is not effectively, you will not be able to effectively bring God glory. Christ has, be, has to be the center of your life. If me is the center of my life, things are out of order. If sports are the center of my life, things are out of order. Fill in the blank. If my business is the center of my life, things are out of order. God is called to be the center of our life. We are to bring glory and honor to him. 
Our freedom in Christ is ultimately for the glory of Christ. That's what we need to remember and take away. Our freedom in Christ is ultimately for the glory of Christ. Very quickly. Verse 32 through 11.1. Look at what Paul does. He doesn't stand up in front of you at Grace Baptist Church and say, hey, you live this way. And you do it. And leave it at that. He says, hey, listen, here's how we're called to live. Here's how we're called to live in freedom for God's glory and the good of others. But follow my example. Paul presents his own life as an example. He says, listen, I don't seek to offend the Jew and Gentile. Why? It's not because he's scared of the gospel. It's not because he's relativistic and he can't take a stand on absolute truth. That's not it at all. Because he's very clear that the intent of that is to bring others to Christ, to the gospel, his only way. Why? Is he afraid of that? Why does he not want to offend Jew or Gentile or those in the church? Because he was fearful that he might offend them in a way that hindered their reception of the gospel. Listen, we we must be aware of those around us. We must seek to not offend those around us. And that's not pertaining to the gospel. The gospel will be offensive. But in the way I carry out my life, I must do so in a way that does not offend and become a barrier to the gospel. Live in such a way that people want to know God. Live in such a way that they trust Christ and grow more deeply in love with Him. Paul is concerned about the salvation of those around him. And that concern is driven by his desire to glorify God. What about you today? What about you Are you carefully living for God's glory? Am I carefully living for God's glory? Am I living in light of those around? Am I doing an injustice and standing here in hypocrisy, calling you to live that way because you can't follow my example? If that's the case, then as your brother in Christ, and in humility, I would ask you to please confront me. Please. Let us live for God's glory and the sake of those around us in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and we give you glory and we give you all honor for what you have done through Christ. God, we thank you that you have freed us from the bondage of sin. God, our prayer is that in light of that freedom, we would not live and take it for granted. We would not abuse it. We would not slip into legalism. We would not be focused on me. God, we would not be selfish. But God, we would focus on you and your glory and on the needs of those around us. So God, let us not be stumbling blocks to our brothers and sisters. Let us spur them on towards love and good deeds for your glory and for their good. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.